Welcome to the So Why podcast with Step Care Solutions. This podcast aims to explore issues and challenges as well as ideas and solutions leading to strengthening support for mental wellness and recovery. My name is Alexa Bull, Knowledge Exchange Manager at Step Care Solutions, and I will be your host for this episode. In this episode, we will discuss substance use health and structural barriers to receiving meaningful support for substance use health in our current system. We will also discuss a person-centric approach to health and well-being and including substance use health in interactions throughout the system in a similar way to the way we include mental health and physical health. We will also touch on infusing the practice of compassion and kindness in every interaction in a system that values well-being everywhere. Achieving a vision of well-being everywhere may seem lofty, but there are so many amazing people and organizations that work throughout systems that are really making it happen. The complexities of life often create situations, feelings, and responses that are difficult for us to truly understand. Substance use has traditionally held a lot of stigma within systems and also on individual and personal levels. Putting people first is an important part of moving toward wellness and acknowledging and including substance use health in supporting people's well-being through access to diverse options to care includes treating people in a respectful and helpful manner. Today, we are joined by Gord Garner, the Vice President of Strategic Partnerships of the Community Addictions Peer Support Association, or CAPSA. He is a national public speaker and educator on system stigma and trainer on person-first language. At the time of this podcast, he is living well with his own substance use disorder. He is dedicated to removing stigma barriers and enabling policy writers, academics, researchers, and people with personal experience with substance use health issues to make system-level changes to improve the health outcomes of people living in Canada who use or have used substances. He advocates that all policies and regulations need to be reviewed through the lens of increased life security and substance use health outcomes by including an all people, all pathways model. All of his work is informed by his 38 years of active addiction and by those who helped him. He believes compassion is a practice and he is practicing. Welcome Gord to the So Why podcast. It's so nice to have you on today. Wow, it's so exciting to be here, and I'm really looking forward to this opportunity to have a discussion around substance use health. Me too. So maybe you can just start out by telling us a little bit about the concept of substance use health. Well, it's a fascinating thing because it's, yeah, somebody once said to me, it's not like rocket science. We're just not sure why we never said those three words together again. And that's where I get to enter in the conversation about stigma and discrimination towards substance use looks like and the inability as a society to be able to say those three words together. Even though we do an awful lot of work in the substance use health field already, we've never actually said that out loud, that that's what we're doing. We've come up with other terms around education and prevention and harm reduction and treatment. But they're just activities around people's substance use and their health. So the question is, why is this new? And that's where you get to systemic barriers and prejudice towards people who use substances. But we know now that 78% of people living in Canada over 15 this year will use substances. So it's no longer a question about should people use substances, will they use substances, don't use substances. It's people use substances. 
And therefore, we need to be in this position of talking about their substance use health. Recognizing for some people that we'll be not using substances. But by far, the majority of people living in Canada are going to use substances. And we need to help talk about their health, much as we talk about physical health and mental health. We don't talk about physical services. We don't talk about mental services. We talk about physical health services and mental health services. And so if we're going to have equity as part of that for funding, as we're going to have equity around the holistic person, if I go to the doctor this year, I should walk in and because of my age, they're probably going to say, hey, you got any aches and pains, Gord? How's it going? And then uh, how's your mental health and how's your stuff to yourself? Just that conversation. And then I'll be able to say, you know, I'm okay, this and that. And yeah, I got some aches and pains, but go figure, I'm 68. That would be expected. And uh, I'm okay around my substitutes today. We believe that that will open the doorway for those people living in Canada who have an actual diagnosable condition, medical condition around their substance use, or have concurrent struggles with mental health and substance use, to have that conversation. But ironically, most of the costs in our society don't come from that end of the spectrum. They come from loss of workplace efficiencies. And so this idea and vision most people have around substance use issues being something to do with homelessness, something to do with being street engaged, something to do with a certain population. This is just from our social media, from our newspaper stories. The truth is 78% of Canadians use substances. It's really interesting. And I think it's such a positive approach to embracing a whole person. And, and what a great way to kind of reduce stigma throughout the system by having that expectation of that type of health, just like there's other types of health. I'm wondering, you know, at, with the StepCare 2.0 model, we sort of look at variety of services and kind of organize them low to high intensity. And I know that you're familiar with the model. And I'm wondering if you can give us some examples today of types of program services across a spectrum from low to high intensity that are helpful in supporting folks with their substance use health. Sure. And I can also, if it's okay, mention a few that are gaps, right? And so when we look at our prevention model, It was based around the idea of not doing something and preventing the problems of doing something versus recognizing people are going to have these experiences. And what we want to do is let them know where the resources are to help them, what information they need to have to make cost benefit decisions, right? And have these things tangible. And so the the step care model there would actually be the information and the presumption that eight out of 10 people in front of me today in my classroom are going to be using substances. I should probably inform them about some strategies about how to do that with the best health outcomes possible. And then also inform them of what looks like when people struggle and what resources are for them as well. Because no one in my classroom today is going to believe that they're going to be the person who struggles. But everyone in my classroom today needs to know that someone sitting here is going to struggle. One of my friends, perhaps myself, perhaps a person sort of two social groups away from me, but we're all in the classroom together. We're going to be in the community together. We're going to be living in Canada together. Certainly, I want them to know how to to access resources as needed. The other piece would be around what is commonly called harm reduction. 
Uh, and that's a you know, the funny thing because most people in Canada don't know what harm reduction is. But if I said that it's a, it's it's practices and activities to increase the health outcomes of people using substances, they go, well, well, why don't you just say it so? Well, and and there's a reason for that because at the time that that was started, they weren't acceptable because it was still in that model of you shouldn't do that versus the model that people do that. It's sort of like when we didn't have airbags in cars, you shouldn't be in accidents, drive safe, right? And now we go, okay, even if you drive safe, there's a lot of people on the road and there's weather conditions, so so you should probably have an airbag. So that's a harm reduction activity, but what it does is increases the safety and security of life for people. And these are the same things. And so when we put these through the lens of health, people living in Canada suddenly go, oh, okay. The big confusion can be around this is that we're not encouraging people to use substances for acknowledging that they do. I think that uh, liquor and beer companies and the cannabis companies have done a tremendous job in terms of marketing. We don't need to help them. What we do need to do, what we haven't done, is a great job of marketing substance use health and letting people know they don't have to be really ill before they can improve their health around their substance use. And in fact, if they take those steps now, their long-term health will be better. And that does not mean they won't use substances, but it means they will use them in a, in a manner that supports their long-term health from an informed decision-based basis, just like most of us decide to drive the speed limit, because we know that means the likelihood is that we're not going to be in one of these accidents. The other piece, I guess, that comes to mind is uh, what we call treatment. And it's a kind of a funny thing, too, for more severe health outcomes around substance use, because what we're really doing is identifying the issues and the struggles that people have around their substance use and where they may came from. So it's like a checklist of what you'll need to work on going forward rather than a solution. So I haven't gone to the hospital to fix my broken arm. I've gone to a healthcare setting to learn about why I have pain in my arm and how I can solve that through different acts that it may well need to be maintained throughout my life. The other piece is that we have, of course, what we've called in the past an enforcement piece. And so when you put substance use health lens over that, and if you go back, I don't want to rehash history around all this. There's a lot of prejudice. There's a lot of discrimination involved and oppression involved in, in the original drug laws. But at some point, the concept in the population became that that was for the good of us. So now when you use substance use health and you say, well, when you criminalize simple possession, are you helping that person's health? Are you helping their family health, helping the community health? And the answer is pretty simple, no. And so now, so where does regulation have a, have a, have a place in there? Well, it certainly has a place in terms of regulators apply, known quantities, known dosages, in some cases, restricted supply, safer supply for people who aren't able to self-protect at this time and place to secure people's lives. But all of these things fall in these, this umbrella of substance use health. And then once you look through that lens, it's much clearer what you need to do next. So if I go and get a bottle of pop from the corner store, there's a list of ingredients, sometimes simple, sometimes complex. But I know what's in there. I have some idea of some nutritional values. I have some idea of sugar content because there's some idea that that might not be good for you. But if I go buy a bottle of alcohol, it says it's got alcohol in it this much, 8%, 12%, 40%, 4.5%, and that's it. 
so why wouldn't you tell me about the 96% of what's in the bottle? This would make sense from a health perspective. If I need to know what's in my pop, wouldn't I need to know what the other 96% is in my beer, the other 60% in my bottle of vodka, whatever that is, right? And so all of a sudden you're looking at all these opportunities for regulation. If I go buy some cannabis and you tell me how much THC is in there, what percentage it is, but you can't tell me what a dose is. Well, I guess I'll just take it and tell the when, the what, what's that look like? And so there's a lot of work to be done in all these areas. I knew this umbrella that we're interested in the health of the person using the substances. And again, for some folks, that'll be not using them. But it's certainly not a given, and it's certainly not anywhere close to the majority of people. Again, 78% is a big number. Yeah. I think that's all very interesting. And I think it's it's very positive as a very positive way of thinking about things and aligns really nicely with the Step Care 2.0 approach as well. You know, you're giving people support, providing information so that people can make choices about their own substance use health, you know, whether it has become problematic and recognizing that or whether they just want to make good choices about their substance use health. So I really appreciate sort of walking walking us through those different areas within the whole spectrum of substance use health because you're right there's so many different implications across the system when it comes to substance use and when you frame it in the lens of health I think it totally shines a different light on the whole idea. Well and, I, and if we go right back to the beginning where the light's going to shine brightest is simply on my ability to communicate about substance use to someone else and for me to communicate to someone else about my substance use. And we know that once we begin that conversation, answers come. But if I can't consider the conversation, if I mention my substance use and, and I believe that you're gonna immediately diagnose me at the far end of the spectrum, and I'm positive I'm not there, why would I talk to you? So, you know, nine out of 100 doctors talk to people about their substance use here in Canada. So why don't the other 91? Right? There's a big question. Well, why not? And, and they'll have answers. But we haven't asked the question about how you can be interested in somebody's well-being and, and general health and not have a conversation about their substance use with them. How is that possible? Primary care physicians will tell you. People with lived and living experience will tell you right? that it's possible from lack of education, it's possible from lack of resources, it's possible from not knowing what to do with, and it's possible because we only think that this, 4.5% with severe issues, have the health concerns. When we know it's actually not that, that is, I come from that community, so trust me, it's a health concern. But the majority of costs, the majority of harms happening are from general use that goes in between problematic and in between stuff in long-term consistent use from people who never identify with that far end of the spectrum, but are oblivious or unknowing about their health risks that they're actually participating in. Totally. I think that makes so much sense in terms of being able to have conversations about it. And, and I love that question, why? Why are we not talking about it? And there's a whole plethora of reasons likely out there, but it also just shows that there's so much work to be done in terms of 
promoting substance use health and being able to understand what that means and how it's a part of the whole person and a part of a person's overall health. I'm wondering then, what are some ways that communities can support substance use health? Well, I think one of the wonderful things that we're working on together with Subcare Solutions is the Wellness Together Portal. And where we have our all people, all pathway meetings, where it's a place for people to come and examine their relationships with substances without the presumption or need for a diagnostic criteria or the assumption that that means you're not going to use anymore. It's just high. I'm not sure I'm doing it right. Yeah. Anybody got any ideas? Anybody got any experiences how it was for them? And, uh, I don't have to come and make call myself any names. I don't have to pre-diagnose myself because how could I? Because everything I learned about substance use and substance use struggles, I learned from the newspaper and the TVs and the movies. I didn't learn it from my doctor. So, so what would I know about anything? Really? You know, and so we need to end that ignorance, but also the ignorance exists and there's a whole population that is that has that. So we need these places. And if people feel safe to ask the question about the relationship with anything, they hear their own answers. And so our peer support groups are very much about you asking your questions so you can hear your answers and us being there with you to support you in your answers and in your direction. Isn't that what we want for all of us? Don't we all have this piece inside of us that knows what we should or shouldn't do? If we can have the conversation. I mean, everybody sat down at some point in their life and some friend has confided, I'm not sure about my relationship. And we all have our opinions about our friends' relationships. But what do we do? We go, well, well, what's, what's the problem? What do you think's wrong? Right? And the person tells us. And so they know the answers. They may not want to take action today, like many of our friends. But they've got a place to have a conversation. And in some ways, the relationship with themselves is healthier. And we know that people that are attached to themselves and have healthier self-relationships have healthier mental health, healthier physical health outcomes, and healthier substance health outcomes. The, the reverse of trauma, the reverse of, you know, you hear people talk about uh, connection is the opposite of some stuff, right? But it's actually connection to self. People are surrounded by friends and family sometimes and have great levels of depression, great struggles with substance use, surrounded by friends and families. So it's not about that. It's about the ability to be with one's own self and have one's own experience and be okay with me. Happy, unhappy, sad, mad, glad. I'm okay. Those are just my feelings. They're important to me, but they're not that serious. So that's that place we try to get people to, to, we don't work on people's happiness. We don't work on people's sadness. We work on people's comfort with themselves. I think that's such a fantastic approach in terms of, it's very person-centric, you know, and it recognizes a person's own strength, their own capacity, and that we can be helpful to each other. So just by having that conversation and drawing on our own experiences and our own knowledge and our own strength and capacity, we can actually be helpful to each other. Like you mentioned about discussing your relationship with someone or you're facing a particular challenge. Maybe you're searching for a job, you're facing some bumps in the road, you go to your friends, you talk about it. You ask them questions, what about your experience? So, so being able to do that also with substance use health is such a fantastic natural way to help people with that. 
Well, and you, in the step care solution moves back into community, back into family, back into colleagues, and further away from the health door. And then also the health door becomes easier to reach if needed, all at the same time. I get a little excited about this. In my entire adult life, in my own struggles, but also I've known thousands of people who also struggled. The biggest issue has been, I can't tell anybody. I can't tell anybody and nobody I talk to understands, right? Because there's this idea that the other person has to understand and it gets kind of confused because really it's me that needs to understand. And I just need a wall of people there going, it's okay, well, you sort out your understanding we can be with you. Yeah. And we can talk about what we didn't understand and we can talk about our mistakes. You know, one of the things we learn from each other isn't what we did right, but that we did things wrong and we're still here and we're still okay. That vulnerability to be human, to be imperfect, this is something we can share with each other. We tend to want to educate each other about what we got right, eh? That's a, a bit of our school system thing. Hey, I got it right, and so I'm a good person. And if you get it wrong, it means you're not a good person. And like, you know, sorry about that, but we had to, you know, we had to tell you. And it's like, wow, what if it was okay, eh? This allows people to enter into the conversation without having to change to be okay. We're, as a society, connected to the idea that if I'm happy, that means I'm okay, rather than if I'm safe, then I'm okay. And my emotions should be connected to my experiences. And so naturally, if I live this life, I'm going to have periods of unhappiness because the leaves are going to fall off the trees. For those of us who don't like winter, it's coming again. And for those of us who don't like summer, it's coming again. For those of us who live in spring and fall, we find out it's much too short, even though it's the same amount of time. And so, and our friends are leaving and our family members are leaving and we're leaving eventually. And so we should not be so connected to our happiness as the, as the measuring stick of our health, but to our personal safety and to our connection to self into the authentic relationship we have with the experiences that are going on in front of us, including our sadness, including our sorrow. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about throughout the system, where are we facing the major barriers to substance youth health? The first barrier is acknowledging people use substances and that we're not looking at a small portion. I've been, I've experienced homelessness. I've experienced abject poverty. And so, but that's a small portion of our population that absolutely needs to have their poverty end to have the home, their experience of homelessness end, you know, but that's not actually about them. That's about the 33, 33 million Canadians that allow a quarter million Canadians to be homeless. So the question is, what's isn't what's wrong with people experiencing homelessness, it's what's wrong with the 33 million Canadians experiencing a loss of in, in, insufficient compassion to, to allow that to happen. Why do they feel too powerless to do something about that? Why do they experience too much shortage in their own lives of luxury to have enough to share with those who have nothing? That's an incredibly desperate, unhappy place for 33 million people to be living in. Wow. They need some healing. Don't get me wrong. The, the, the people experiencing homelessness need, need compassion and help. The, people experiencing luxury and suffering from self-importance and suffering from insufficiency in that luxury 
are the ones that are truly suffering because there's no solution for them other than their own actions. That's a little off topic, I realize, but I go down these roads. <laughs> That's totally fine. So homelessness definitely is, is an issue in across Canada. Any city that you go to, definitely there's issues with that. Are there any other barriers to being able to move forward with substance use health? Well, systemic stigma is the largest barrier. There's, there's no doubt about it. This presumption that it's only an issue if it's really bad, and if it's really bad, it's your fault. And it's your fault, you should do something about it. And if it gets too messy and too ugly in your privilege, then we'll send you off somewhere, and then you better stop, right? So this whole punishment piece, which actually echoes throughout the healthcare system, it echoes throughout the lack of resources, it echoes when there's no education in schools to speak of, it, edu- it, it echoes when there's no labeling on bottles, this echo of systemic stigma, right? this inability to use the word health with substance use. That's not an accident. That's, that's reflective of the systemic uh, discrimination and disapproval of people who use substances that is carte blanche in coming through a system. So when I talk about something yourself, I'm, I'm not talking about a new way of saying something. I'm talking about systemic change to structural systems that are embedded with stigma and punishment as outcomes to support people who struggle with substance use. I want to be very clear about that. This is not a, a new new language. No, no, it, it's it's purposeful systemic stigma being addressed through language, just as the absence of that language highlights the systemic stigma. I think that's that's such an important distinction to make is that sometimes, you know, changing words, changing the way we say things is is not necessarily about the word about the words about changing language. It's about shifting the way we're thinking about something or the way that we're viewing something to reduce some of those systemic problems, some of that judgment or shame on on a particular area, which doesn't necessarily have to be there if you're viewing the whole person, if you're viewing a whole person's health. Well, and now we're talking about eight out of of 10 of your colleagues and friends and family and community members. Exactly. So now who does it matter to? Now who's going to vote for funding changes? Now who's going to go and talk to the politicians? Now who's going to go lobby for this? We often are mistaken in advocacy that we want to lift up our pain and put it in front of people and say, look how much pain we've had. And uh, there's a pain needs to be identified as important. People actually, you know, it's a very true experience. But pain without connection is separation. It causes pity. Uh, it's too bad about you. And I'm going to use a fairly harsh example. There used to be a card that came every year in the mail around the holiday season. And there would be a picture of people who didn't have any food to eat. Maybe you should send some money. And people did. And the cards kept coming every year. You know why? Pity was evoked. Money was sent, but nothing changed. So we need people to know that we're talking about them. We're talking about their friends, their family members. We're not talking about a small part of the population they're probably not connected to. We're talking about the large part of the population that they're probably part of. 
and that they're making decisions without information and they're having negative health impacts without information and without services and that they don't have any place to have their conversations and that the cost of our society is in the billions and billions of dollars because of that. And I like to think that on some level, all of us recognize that that's the dollars, the cost in our friendships, the cost in our loved one's health, cost of somebody 25 years later saying, geez, I didn't know what I was doing was going to cost me this much at this point in my life. Because it didn't seem to be that bad because I didn't know what unhealthy was. I didn't know. So what do you think some of the keys to being able to move forward on substance use health and effectively supporting those who use substances and their health? A couple of things. We're going to need all those people to speak up, stand beside, right? And we're going to need evidence. We're going to need evidence. And then sometimes this is kind of like, sometimes you hear jazz music and you kind of hear the notes they don't play have this big impact on the music, right? Or there's a big hit record on the AM radio, there's this dead space. They sort of hang for the drum to kick back in or the guitar, right? So the evidence right now is this big blank. The evidence is that we don't say substance health. The evidence is that we don't have funding. The evidence is that 91 out of 100 doctors don't talk about substance health. So what do we need to do next? Well, we need to say, well, we better get some stuff going on here and find ask those 91 folks why you don't talk to your patients about your substance use. We better ask the universities, why don't you teach your doctors about substance use health? We better talk to systems and programs about why your policies don't have the word health in them. Gosh, if you're wondering why the outcomes aren't what you wanted, you might want to start saying what your outcome is. And so they've actually started that here in Ottawa, and Ottawa Public Health has changed its department to mental health and substance use health. And we're seeing this rolling out across the country because it's this incredibly awkward thing. We try to have this uh, warm and compassionate conversation about the need to do this, but I understand it is coming from stigma. And so sometimes if we get, I'll, I'll confess, if I get a little frustrated, I, and because some people have tried to use, to use substance use services, and so let me list some substance use services for you, okay? Cannabis stores, beer stores, waiters, waitresses, local drug dealer, right? Pharmacy. These are all substance use services. Any argument? Okay. <laughs> so what you meant then was substance use health services. Okay, well, let's just say that then, right? But you understand there is a reason they didn't say substance use health services to begin with. I'm not saying individually consciously, but systemically from education, from training, people to go write policy and they can't say the word health with substance use. Oh, substance use services or just substance use. Well, I can guarantee you someone in the patio at 31 degrees having a class of spritzer has no experience of having a substance use issue. Or should they? Probably someone there is but not most of the people, they just have a glass of spritzer on a hot summer day. So stop that, you know, stop that. It's substance use health that we're interested here in Canada. And we acknowledge that 78% of Canadians over 15 use substances. And we wanna have conversations with them, ourselves and everybody else living in Canada about their health and what's needed to support that health, including education, including services and conversations and counseling 
around any part in the spectrum of substance use, up to and including having serious health outcomes. Wow, this conversation has been really, really insightful today. I've learned, um, I've learned a lot from you, and I, I know our listeners also, you know, are learning and desire to learn and grow in these areas. I'm wondering, you know, before we end off our conversation, if you have anything else that we've not been able to cover during our conversation that you'd like to add to leave our listeners with today. And can I maybe be a little philosophical at, at this time? And, and so um, there's a couple of things I encourage everybody to, to consider as being possible. And that if we're going to experience some things, there are some things only we ourselves can give ourselves the experience. And so when it comes to respect, I can't get it from anybody, but I can give it to anybody. So I have a richness of respect if I give it to people. I have a great shortage if I try to get it from people. It's the same thing with kindness. What's kindness? It's always a decision. Why is the decision? Well, because I don't want to be. Somebody's doing something I don't approve of or I don't think is right, eh? And so that's wrong. And so what's the outcome, eh? Can I choose to be kind? Because if I demand kindness from others, I'll never get enough. Compassion, caring for other people, whether we agree with or disagree with that, eh? Can we keep in mind the integrity and the, and the life in front of us and wish them well? Not because I like them, not because I approve of them, but because they're human beings and they have a right to life and they have a right to the best life they can have. And so part of what's happening around substance use is, you know, which one do you use? How do you use it? You know, how big is your struggle? It's like poverty, right? No, no one chooses poverty, typically. No one chooses having a substance use disorder or an addiction. Nobody chooses to live outside, typically. So imagine then when you're looking at people who are really struggling, that they've done the very best they can all their lives to have a good life. And maybe it hasn't worked out. And you might not approve of what's happening now, but I wonder how they feel about it. And I wonder if their life's going to be improved by my judgment or by my compassion. That's really powerful. Thank you so much for for sharing that. And thank you so much for joining us on the So Why podcast today. I think it was it was a fantastic conversation. And as I mentioned, I've learned a lot during this conversation. So I really appreciate you taking the time and joining us. And hopefully we'll have you on again sometime. Well, thanks, Alexa. I painted myself in a bit of a box now. I got to go off and be kind. Otherwise, I'll be a hypocrite. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, I don't have to be perfect. I, you know, compassion is a practice. And so okay. I'm, pra I'm practicing and I encourage everybody to join in the practice. Don't let anybody wait to get perfect. That's right. That's right. Thank you so much, Gord. Okay. All the best. Thanks. Thank you once again for joining us on the So Why podcast with Step Care Solutions. For more information on the Step Care 2.0 model, the Wellness Together Canada portal, as well as links to resources mentioned in this episode, please check out the show notes below. Thanks for tuning in once again. We look forward to having you back next time.